0: Just a welcome to everyone again, and uh, for those who are perhaps looking in or are going to look download stuff later off our website, welcome, it's great to have you all with us. Um, We're going to continue on today um, looking at the power of the cross, and over the last couple of weeks we we looked at um, things like the significance of the Lord's Table of Communion, that that this new covenant meal that Jesus instituted on the night that he was betrayed was a reminder of his death and of his suffering, and but it's also of the power of his sacrifice and of, of what comes to us, the benefits that we receive. And so we looked at that a few weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday. We looked at the power of the resurrection, um, that Jesus' resurrection from the grave was more than just a, a miracle um, of life for Jesus, but it results in life for us, that there is a restoration of hope and of destiny and of eternal life and health and healing, all of those things that come to us as benefits of the resurrection. If Jesus only died but did not rise again, then he's just a dead religious leader. But we know that he rose again and, that, and it's just incredible power that flows to us because of the resurrection. And then last week, I think it was, we, we debunked this idea that um, God abandoned Jesus at the cross, that God had somehow rejected Jesus uh, because of the, the sin that Jesus bore on his body, that when Jesus uttered those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not a statement of fact. It was Jesus quoting from a prophetic psalm, Psalm 22, and he was drawing people's attention to the fact that he was the fulfillment. He was the Messiah because the rest of that psalm goes on and it talks about the way that he would be pierced, his hands and his feet would be pierced, how um, the soldiers would, would um, vie for his clothes and and, and and divide them up amongst themselves. That, but, but I love the way that that psalm finishes because it says God has not, despise me. He has not abandoned me. He has not turned his face away from me. Um, and so if God never abandoned Jesus at that time, when he carried the weight of oh, and, and, the, and the wickedness and the horribleness of, of mankind's sin, then then for us, then no matter, his promise to us is that no matter how bad we may be, or no matter how many times we mess up, he will never reject us or abandon us. What can separate us from the love of God? Paul says in Romans chapter eight, um, and so that's what we've looked at in the last the last few weeks. And so today I want to continue looking at the power of the cross and look at this subject of the atonement. And the reason I want to do this is because of some of the nonsense that's going around the airways at the moment regarding this uh, coronavirus, this COVID nineteen thing, and God's judgment. Um, I counseled us a few weeks ago to be discerning in what we listen to and what we watch that we don't allow all of these doomsday prophets and and conspiracy theorists to get into our minds um, and and sadly rather than abate those those people seem to be getting more vocal and there's more of this stuff going around um, that's that's becoming even more bizarre um, I noted, I noted back then, a few weeks ago, that you know one particular prophet who was being very widely promoted on on well-known Christian TV shows was adamant that God had spoken to him personally and audibly in a vision, um, and that had God God had said to him, you know, he's had enough of of China and its and its persecution on Christians, and so he is going to punish that nation, um, and so this virus is God's punishment for. Their sins. Well, you know, if that's the case, God made a big mistake. He overstepped the mark because um, it just—it was an unjust punishment because it didn't just stay confined to China. It spread across the whole globe, with many innocent people dying in the process, including many God-loving, God-serving Christians. And that's simply not a portrayal of a God that I hold to. Um, now, I'm not going to spend time getting into a whole eschatological debates or trying to teach on end times. Um, for anyone who's interested in, in that kind of stuff, talk to me and I'll send you a whole study we did a few years ago um, that that helps to bring some understanding and through the perspective of the cross and God's grace. But But here's what Paul says to Timothy. When Timothy was having to deal with some people, um, who had come into the church and who were influencing the church in a negative way? They're being controversial. They're bringing, bringing confusion and discord into the church. And he says to them, uh, he, he, Paul writes to Timothy and he encourages him. He says to them this: says, preach the word. It says, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And Paul writes to Titus and he says a very similar thing to him. He says, encourage others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So I really don't want to spend time and energy putting out a lot of fires, but I do want us to be grounded in truth so that when you face all of these reports and these ideas and these theories, that we are armed with the resources and with a, Uh, a scriptural understanding that enables you to stand and not get shaken. Remember, we've got a hope, we've got an anchor for our soul uh, that is eternally connected with an unbreakable oath sustained by God's integrity and God's promises. And uh, so I just want us to hold to truth, to stay the course and to stay stable. And so whenever we preach about the cross and all the benefits that come to us, through the cross and what the cross really means. So that's that's reaffirming and it's re-establishing a foundation that holds us in good stead for all of life. And so I want to read just a few verses out of Romans chapter 5. So uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, Romans chapter 5. You've looked at a few scriptures out of this over the last few weeks. Give you a minute just to turn there. So Romans 5 and uh, from verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own power, his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who through him we now have received reconciliation. That word reconciliation there is in the King James Version is, is the word atonement, that we've received atonement. Because we've received this atonement, this reconciliation, We've been reconciled to God. So that's the reason for great joy. You know, happiness is based on our circumstance. But true joy comes from knowing that you are at peace with God. You've been reconciled. You've been saved from wrath. Um, Paul says a few verses earlier, if you look back at verse 1, he says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, okay, if this if this virus... Is God's wrath and God's judgment, and and Christians are dying through it. Then what does that say about Jesus? What does that say about the cross? It's saying that His sacrifice wasn't enough. It's saying that Jesus isn't really our savior. That we're not justified. That you have no peace. That you haven't actually really been reconciled to God at all. Um, and I think the primary reason that people gravitate to, or they that to, to these punishment and these judgment and these conspiracy theories is because they don't understand the atonement. And so for me it's a very, very important subject for us to understand. So what so what does that term mean? What does the term atonement mean? Well the simplest definition is at one minute. atonement at one minute, if you break the word down. Um, It means to be brought back to a place of union or unity or harmony with God to reconcile those who have been estranged from each other. Um, And that, of course, raises the question, why were we out of harmony or out of union with God? And uh, and, and I'm sure we, we all understand that. It's because of sin. It's because of man's rebellion against God. The Old Testament view or understanding of this, um, that word atonement in, in Hebrew was the word kafar, and it means to cover over. It was used to describe the covering over of an offence, not by sweeping it out of sight, you know, sweeping it under the carpet or ignoring it or denying it, um, but it meant to make an equivalent payment for. In other words, an offence has been paid for. Um, right in the beginning, in Genesis we see God comes down and he slaughters an animal. He sheds the blood of an innocent creature in order to cover Adam and Eve with skins. Um, Hebrews 9, I think, around verse, 20, 20, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood there's no remission or there's no payment or no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, God covers their sin with the very first sacrifice. In the Old Testament, covenant system, we see a ceremony that was carried out every year, once a year on the Day of Atonement, um, and it was quite a long process. Um, the high priest would would take a bull and he would take a ram and he would sacrifice him. He would, he would take some of the blood of that bull and he would go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Remember, the, the, the mercy seat was the lid. It was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a golden box. And, and so he would, he would sprinkle blood on it. It was also called um, the lid of atonement or the atonement cover. And um, it covered the old covenant law. It, the, he would do that as an atonement for his sins and for the sins of his family. He did that so that he could be made clean in order to make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. Um, but before he did that, he, he had to do a, several other things. And One of the main things he had to do is he had to take a bowl and fill it with coals from the altar and then sprinkle incense on it. And then he would stand at the entrance of the Holy of Holies and he would waft all of the smoke from that um, from that bowl from that censer into the Holy of Holies and make sure that it was filled with smoke. And he did that, one, as an act of worship, but he also did it so that the room would be filled with that smoke so that the, so that the ark would be covered. Um, and he had to do that before he sprinkled blood because he he wasn't deemed worthy until he was able to do that. He wasn't able to look on the glory of God. Have you, have you ever wondered why you see sometimes in in, uh, in particular in Orthodox churches, in say the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox Church or even the Roman Catholic Church, you see these processions of priests and they are one will hold a cross, one will hold a, a light or a lamp, um, but you always see one holding a censer, sometimes on a long stick and on a chain, and as they swing it, then, then little wasps of smoke come out of it. Well, that's, an, that's a carryover from this Old Testament ritual of, of, of hiding themselves from God's glory because they, because they don't deem themselves as worthy to enter into God's presence. And, and that for me is very sad because there's no understanding that through the blood of Jesus we have been made righteous, we have been made worthy and we have entrance into his presence. So the whole old covenant system was a a shadow of what was what was to come a, a, a better covenant was coming so the priest would go in he would he would offer this blood on behalf of himself and and, and his family and then he would go back out and he would take two goats and he would slaughter one and he would take its blood back into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat in the same way and that was for the sins of the whole people the whole nation, and it was there to cover their sin. And then he would go back out and he would take the second goat and he would lay his hands on its head and he would confess the sins of the whole nation and impart the sin of the people into that goat. And then he would send that goat out into the desert with an attendant who would make sure that it would never return, sending the sins away. And then once he'd done all of that, he would come back and then he would burn the remains of the bull and the ram and the first goat, again, as an atonement for the people's sin. And so we've got this whole complex ceremony to deal with sin, but it only ever dealt with it temporarily. It, it just dealt with it for one year. And then they would have to go through the whole process again. That was the day of atonement, a day of blood sacrifice to cover sin, to pay for sin, to take sin away. So why do they have to do all of this? Well, two reasons. Um, they, like us, are descendants of Adam. And as such, they were tainted with Adam's sin. And, and Paul explains that in Romans, 12, uh, Romans 5, uh, verse 12. He says, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all of us. It came to all men because all have sinned. Everyone is guilty because everyone is tainted with sin. Um, That might seem a bit unfair until we realise, no, actually we're all guilty because we've all failed to obey God's law. And so the second thing is that that these sacrifices were necessary to cover people's own personal sin because everyone was guilty of breaking God's laws. When we get to the New Testament, um, we see the fulfilment of all of that symbolism in Jesus' sacrifice. that, that as Christians we, we um, there's, there, well, let me just say this, there, there's been a lot of argument and a lot of debate over the meaning of atonement, that over the centuries people have come up with a whole lot of various reasons and, and ideas as to why Jesus died on the cross. And and not all of them are valid, Um And the result ends up being just people get confused. You end up with all of these convoluted doctrines. Um, Remember what Paul said to Timothy. He says, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And we need careful instruction. We need to be able to refute some of these confusing ideas that people have over what really took place at the cross. Um, So there's three Three main ideas have have arisen as explanations over the centuries. So I want to just take a little bit of time and, and explain those things to you. Number one was this thing: Jesus died as a ransom. Now I'm sure we've all heard that. We've sung hymns or songs uh, with those words and those phrases in it. Um, we've even we even have Jesus himself saying it in Matthew 20. He says, "I didn't come to be served; I came to serve." And to give my life as a ransom for many. So, what's a ransom? Well, a ransom is something that is demanded in payment, um, usually for someone who's been kidnapped. You know, it's a payoff price, and we've all seen movies where, you know, someone's child gets kidnapped, and a ransom notes get wrote, a note gets left, or a phone call gets made demanding money for the safe exchange of that child. And so, the ransom idea goes like this: that Satan had captured the human race, that he was keeping us all captive in a stronghold or a dungeon called sin and was demanding a ransom. And so somehow a deal was worked out between God and Satan and Jesus would come and exchange himself as a ransom price for the release of the human race from Satan's power. In other words, uh, God would agree to turn over his son to Satan in exchange for the souls of men. Um, and, of course, that was that would be an, an arrangement that Satan would gladly agree to. After all, if he could get a hold of the Son of God and hold him captive for all eternity, well, that's a prize that's worth bartering for. And, and, and so the idea is that Satan captured Jesus in death and as Jesus then descends into hell, Satan thinks he's won, um, but, but while he was able to capture Jesus, the man, he could never actually capture the Son of God and so three days later he gets shocked to discover Jesus now has risen and so his, his plan has completely been undone. It's too late. You know, Jesus has already satisfied Satan's ransom demand um, and so not only did, did Satan lose mankind but he lost his prize Jesus. Jesus. That, that's the ransom theory and many Christians hold to that view, certainly to parts of that view. Um, but I think there's some real problems with it. Yes, Jesus did say that He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Um, the Greek word there for ransom is the word is the word Lutron, which means to loosen with a redemptive price. But was that price paid to Satan? Did Satan have the authority to hold God to ransom? Well, no. Does the Bible say that Jesus was paid to Satan? No, it doesn't say that at all. So if the ransom theory is true, um, it could explain how mankind could be freed from Satan's clutches, but it doesn't explain, it doesn't reconcile man back to God. Would God engage in such a deceptive ruse to trick the devil into believing he'd won? Well, no. I mean, God is not the father of lies or deception. That's the devil's game. So what does it mean that Jesus gave himself as a ransom? Well, it's a term used to explain the costliness of redemption, that through Jesus' death we've been loosed. We've been released from our bondage to sin and to death and to the law. We've been released from the dominion of Satan to be brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He won the victory over sin and death for us and it cost him his life. It was a costly thing for him to do but he didn't pay a price to Satan, to the devil. It's a wrong idea. The the, the second uh, predominant idea that people have is this, is that Jesus was then um, a sin payment owed to God. Now, now, sadly, that's something that's been, I think, very distorted and, and, and wrongly described. Um, and it's often done with this idea that that, that, that God is this angry, vengeful God who is, who is intent on violent punishment. Now, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. That's the price, death. But this idea goes along the lines that God was so angry with the human race that his anger had to be appeased. And so Jesus becomes this this penal sacrifice to, to satisfy the bloodlust of this angry, wrathful God. And, and that's the way it's often taught. And that for me is a, a real distortion of the nature of God. It's a misinterpretation of a number of scriptures. It's a simplistic view. Um, it's interpreted through humanistic, a humanistic version of justice that really comes from paganism. It's nothing more than Greek mythology. You know, it's it's an idea that um, that says human sin is the failure to give God the honor that He rightly reserve, re, rightly deserves, and so. That dishonour then is sin, and this dishonour cannot simply be forgiven, it calls for punishment. And since God is infinite and eternal, um, his honour takes on this infinite proportion. The human debt of sin is therefore also infinite. And since it's a human debt and humans need to pay the price, but no human is infinite or eternal, The only solution is that uh, it had to be an infinite and eternal being who would come and pay the debt. And so in mercy, God sends Jesus in human form, a God-man to pay the debt that we owe to God, that God's honour had to be um, restored, that the punishment had to fit the crime. And so Jesus' death somehow vindicated God's honour And somehow restores honor to uh, restores order to creation, that Christ's death um, somehow equalized the dishonor of man's sin, that God's anger was satisfied and mankind was then forgiven and pardoned. Now, again, some of that sounds very plausible. And and it's probably what most of us have been taught in some way. Um, And, yes, Jesus' death was a very costly payment. It was horrific. But here's the question. Was it to appease some bloodlust of a violent God? Was it to restore God's honour? Was it to pay the punishment price to satisfy an angry God? Because if it was, then this God is no different to the Greek gods who war against mankind, beating them into submission. It puts the focus on God's honour rather than on God's love. It puts the focus on having to appease an angry God rather than on reconciliation. And I think a significant weakness of that idea is that there's no real removal of sin. There's no breaking of sin's hold and there's no recognition recognition that Jesus came because of God's love. Um, It also brings with it the idea that God, um, that the God of the Old Testament was always angry and vindictive but through Jesus satisfying God's anger On the cross, that God now somehow changed. Having his wrath appeased, he now turns into this more benevolent, loving, kind God. And it it, it, it concentrates on God being reconciled to man rather than what scripture teaches that man has been reconciled back to God. In other words, God is this angry, wrathful God, but Jesus is loving and kind. And somehow Jesus changed God's mind and changed God's nature. Now, what it means, if, if, if that's true, if it's true that until God's anger was satisfied, forgiveness could never be given, then then that makes forgiveness a reward for a work rather than an act of grace. It. it and, that, and that's the sin payment theory. And for me, it's full of problems. Now, atonement didn't occur to make possible the forgiveness of sins. Atonement itself is the expression of forgiveness. It's an act of grace. The third, the third idea that is, that is prevalent is the sacrificial love um, death that Jesus died sacrificially because of love. Now that is much closer to what we understand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Um, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So God loves us and that out of his immense, eternal and infinite love, he gave his son as, a, as, as, as the greatest act of love ever seen. And, uh, and so the idea goes that our, that our response, our automatic response then is one of gratitude and love towards God in return. You know, we love because he first loved us. But that's what's often referred to as a moral influence idea, that man would be so impacted by this love expression that he would immediately turn to God and love him back. Now, again, that sounds plausible and it is the closest to the truth so far. But is that all that atonement represents, God's love? Um, You see, there's, there's elements of truth in all three of these views. Jesus did die as a ransom, yes, but it wasn't to pay Satan. It was the cost. Involved to loose us from sin's control. Did Jesus die to pay the penalty or price of our sin? Yes, but it wasn't to appease an angry God or to get him to change his mind. Um, the universal law of God dictates that the wages of sin is death, spiritual death and physical death. That was the consequence of sin. It resulted in a in a spiritual separation from God's abiding presence. And that price had to be dealt with. Why? Because while God is love, he's also just and holy. And, And sin can't exist in his presence. And so sin stands as this constant hindrance to us drawing near to God. It stands in the way of us having any right to know his abiding presence. You see, you can't separate sin from the sinner. Now, we've all heard that, that expression or that phrase, you know, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And it's true. Jesus loved to be around sinners, but but he didn't turn a blind eye to sin. He never condemned people for it, but he restored all those who would receive his mercy and receive his forgiveness. Sin is all, always attached to a person. It has to do with people. It's, it, it's not some abstract thing. And so, for sin to be dealt with, it had to be dealt with with people. When when God gathered all of sin for all time for all mankind, and He placed it on Jesus, it wasn't an abstract entity. It was you. It was you, and that's why God. That's why Paul says in, in, in Romans and elsewhere that we were included in Christ. We were placed. In Christ, we were, on, we were placed on Christ as our sin was placed on Him. Because you can't, because sin isn't just some abstract thing. God couldn't punish sin without punishing the carrier of that sin. That's why Isaiah writes in, in, in Isaiah 53 that He was pierced for our transgressions; He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And that word punishment there is the word chastisement. It means it means to rebuke or to correct or to discipline. And so sin had to be rebuked in such a way that its stranglehold on humanity could be broken. But it wasn't God's anger at humankind. It wasn't God's anger at Jesus. It was God's anger at sin. And, and, and so that's why Paul, Paul says that, you know, when we were powerless, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. With God's anger at sin, he wanted to set us free from sin so that we could know him. So what does all that mean? As as I said earlier, Paul says that we were all included in Christ. Everyone's sin was dealt with. But here's here's the important piece regarding the atonement, and and that is that it requires a response. You know, the, the on the, the the day of atonement in the Old Testament was always held on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a day where people would come out of their tents and they would stand to worship God. It was an act of faith. They were now resting in the knowledge that his that this sacrifice that was going to be made would deal with their sin. They weren't just passive bystanders there. That, that they were actively involved. It was, it was symbolic of what was to come, that everyone now who trusts in Jesus for their sacrifice for them, everyone who, who believes he took their sin, that he carried the punishment for that sin, um, the sin they should have carried. That they now become beneficiaries of his atoning sacrifice. But it always required a response. It requires what the Bible calls faith. Um, In Acts 10, it it says this: it says, the prophets testified about him, that everyone who believes in him would receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Paul, Paul says in Acts 13, that I want you to know that it's through Jesus that the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. It comes to everyone who believes and everyone who believes is set free from sin. Everyone who believes is justified, not under the law of Moses, not by trying to do religious things. You couldn't earn it through your own righteousness, but by simply believing in what Jesus did for you. And so Jesus paid the price. He dealt with sin but it requires us to believe or receive that in order to appropriate that forgiveness into our life. So the Old Testament was an act of, uh, uh, Old Testament act of atonement was a type, it was a shadow, but Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment. He is the substance. He is the mediator of a better promise, um, of a better covenant. In the Old Covenant model, sin can only be atoned for for one year, Uh, It never did anything to make the people righteous. And that's the big difference between the old covenant and the new covenant atonement that was wrought by Jesus. Um, Not only did he deal with the sin issue, but he also dealt with the righteousness issue. You see, God is holy and he is righteous and sin is the exact opposite of that. And so for us to come into a place of perfect unity and harmony with God, we need more than just forgiveness. We need a spiritual transformation that makes us right with God. And that's the real power of atonement. It doesn't just deal with sin. It makes us right as we accept God's gracious gift of righteousness. And, and so the writer to the Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 10, and he says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, those old covenant priests would stand and perform their religious duties. Day after day, they would offer sacrifices, but they could never take away sin. But when Jesus offered sin, offered his sacrifice himself, once for all time, one sacrifice for all sin, he says he sat down at the right hand of the Father because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who have been made holy and that's you and I. For God is no longer counting our sins against us. Our sins were a debt in our spiritual bank account that we had no way of clearing. But the written debt of our sin that stood against us has been taken away. This means that the, the account was not only paid in full and satisfied, but it was completely shut down and removed never to be opened again. There's no sin account with your name on it in heaven. There's no place where sin can be recorded against you ever again. Your account was taken away and it was nailed to the cross in Jesus. We have a new account and it's called the gift of his righteousness. Sin can't affect it. It can't drain it. It can't diminish it. This this account is is given and maintained by the grace of God, not our works. It's maintained and managed by our heavenly mediator and advocate, Jesus. The atonement is not some religious event. It's not some yearly ritual. It's an eternal transaction that frees us from the tyranny of sin. It opens the door into the glorious freedom that's available through Jesus. Folk, God is not angry with us. He loves us because He is love. He is holy. He's righteous and He is just. And everything that was required to bring us into harmony and into unity with God has been done. There's no wrath to be meted out. God is not pouring out punishment and judgment in the form of some virus. No, the atonement put an end to all of that. And so don't go listening to all these doomsday prophets and who speak judgment judgment. You know, stay secure, stay anchored, hold to the truth. That's the power that is in the atonement. And so I, I wanted to share that with us today and just remind us of that today, because it is such a powerful, powerful truth that so many believers are actually quite confused about. They've got they've got little snippets and elements of truth, but it's mixed with a with a lot of Confusing ideas that really do not represent what happened at the cross, and 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 we need to be thoroughly versed and and secure in what really took place. Both Jesus wasn't appeasing an angry, violent God. It was a great act of love. It was a costly act, but it was done to free us from the bondage of sin. That's what Jesus did. And that's the amazing love of our God. And so I wanna my, my prayer for you today is is really if you've been living with some doubt, if there, if if sin has still had some some hold over you, if you're still living the thing of you've got this ledger in heaven and, and every time you do something wrong, there's a black mark that gets that gets put against you. And and until you beg God to forgive you, it can't be cleared so that that that's an old covenant system it's not new covenant truth and my prayer is that you'd be completely free of that today in Jesus name and if you're if you're watching this or if you're going to log on later and watch this and and you've never even asked Jesus into your life you're still living with that with that weight of guilt and and a feeling of condemnation then today the bible gives us this promise that if we believe in our heart that Jesus died for our sin and rose from the grave, that if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord, he gives us the promise that he would save us. And you can do that right now in your room, wherever you are listening to this in your car. Um, you can come into the wonderful freedom that Jesus brought us through his death and resurrection. So God bless you, everyone. I trust you have a great and wonderful week and I trust that encourages you let